you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey everybody and welcome, good to see you. My name is Morgan, uh, lead pastor here. Welcome to Mosaic, certainly if you're new. Uh, you're probably expecting, if you've been here before, the scripture reading right about now. That's what the awkward thing in the room is. So, But we're going to do a couple different things first and it's going to be great. Uh, first of all, just want to, just to take a moment to say happy Veterans Day. Thank all our veterans, those who have served the United States military for their service and sacrifice for us and for our nation. We appreciate you. And second, I want to now talk about the moment that you probably all showed up at church for today. If you were here last week, you know that last week was what we call our Live Big Sunday. It's sort of an annual holiday of sorts here at Mosaic. And what we do is we ask on that day, what would it look like? What if we could co- collectively pool our resources and give generously towards a nonprofit or a, uh, an organization that serves our community in such a way, again, it's a, a group outside our church, completely unconnected to us, uh, in such a way that it may be even change the scope of that organization, change the course of that organization, what if we could all give at least, come on, how much? Thirty nine ninety five. you know, thirty nine ninety five. what if we could give at least that and raise at least $40,000 in one day and give it away to that organization, what, 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 what could we do? Well, I'm excited to announce and reveal that you guys, we didn't just raise $40,000, we didn't just raise $50,000, we didn't even raise $60,000, we raised, here's our grand total for Live Big 2019, $63,000, $501.40. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it is so great. And we're about to see a video of the moment that we brought the check in to, to Casa Marianella. We raised this money for an organization called Casa Marianella. They work and they, with and they serve immigrants and refugee people groups here in Austin. They've got people from all over the world globally, uh, from Europe, uh, from Africa, from Latin America, and like well, how many different languages? Seven different languages, nine different languages, a bunch of languages being spoken there, people all over the world. And so you're going to see a video of the moment that we came in there and gave that to them. Now, I'm going to set this video up. This is important because normally when we go every year, they don't know what's coming. They have no idea. We just raise the money and we show up with a check. And at first, and this happens almost every year, when we show up, we're kind of an inconvenience to them. They don't know why we're coming. We call them and say, hey, we've got a gift that we want to bring you. And normally, you know, they show up and listen, they're busy people. They're hard at work. They're probably understaffed. They're serving their community. They're busting their tails. And they hear some group wants to come give them a check. It's probably $100, $250, $500. And of course, they're grateful for everything that anyone ever gives them. But they don't know that that amount of money is in that check. And so typically, you're going to see this. You know, she's like, hey, great, thank you. Again, opens the check. And now when she sees, again, $63,501.40 later, now we're on a tour. (laughs) Now she's taking us around. Have you met this person? Have you met this person? Let me introduce you to these people. And so she takes us over to their legal team. And again, it's, hey, these people from this church gave us a gift. Thank you, thank you, thank you. $63,000. Hey, let me give you a tour. Let me show you around. Have you met this person? And and then they're asking questions about, what kind of church? Where did you say you were from? First, they couldn't remember. Now they won't forget. That's not about us, though. It's about introducing them to who Jesus is. Jesus is in his heart for them. So let me show you a video and you're going to see what, what happens. It's really cool. Oh. Hi, 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 Hi,
Julie Oliver. Hi. Hi, Julie. Linda Williams, our youth pastor. Nice to meet you. Hi. That's my son, Landon. So we, we received an offering and got this. Wanted to come Thank and deliver so it to much. you. Thank you very and, much. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? 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 Oh, my God. Whoa. That is not what I was expecting before, sure. You know, it's really cool because we're just kicking off a capital campaign because we want to be, we, we work out of 11 houses and we serve 120 people a night, but we never have enough room. So we're kicking off a capital campaign right now to build two nine bedroom houses. Oh, wow. We provide people with housing and food and English classes. We have legal services. We have an acupuncture clinic. Uh, we have a benefits clinic to help people get health insurance, um, case management. We have a bike program to try to get people riding bikes and riding the bus. We have a bus uh, pass program. And, and we try to get people on their feet in three months. So wow. it's quite a sprint. We have these three houses here. Okay. And then. The blue one and the. And the orange one, okay. yeah. And then two miles from here, we have our women's and children's shelter, which is four more houses. And then around the corner here, we have one house, which is a family house. And then we have three transitional houses. Yeah, isn't that good? So thank you. Listen, thank you, thank you, thank you. So great. Listen, that is the power of the local church at work in the city. And that is the power of generosity. So thank you. Thank you for that. They won't, they won't forget that. Um, so glad for that. What a great moment. Uh, but as you can see, we are in the middle of a series this month in November. It's called When Richie Met Gracie. It's a love story of financial implications, and it's all about uh, what it looks like when our stuff, our resources, our riches meet the grace of God. And so right about now, if you're new to church, uh, if you're new to Christianity, this is your first time here, you're a guest, you're probably thinking right about now, I knew it. You know, I come to church and they're talking about money, talking about money. But if that's you, please don't be alarmed. And here's why we're talking about this and why I think it's important to talk about this. Because if you've ever asked the question, and I know you've all asked this exact question, WWJTA, what would Jesus talk about? Well, I know this is, sorry, anyway, a bad joke. But anyway, it's going to get better, I promise. What would Jesus talk about? Up to a point, I think you could say money. Money, and that's because if you separate out all of Jesus' words and teaching by category, what he talked about more than anything, and you knew this if you grew up in church, but including heaven, he talks about money most of all. And so not only is it important for us to talk about, but especially for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it's important for us to try to get this right. So today, if you're nervous, you're suspicious, let me tell you, I'm not trying to get anything out of you. As the kids say, I ain't trying to flex on you today. All right. But what I want for us, most of all, is to follow Jesus. And as we do that, to live our lives the best we can. So to get you to think about this topic, maybe your money a different way, I want to look at what might be, what might be Jesus' strangest teaching of them all. His most confusing parable he ever told that we have recorded in the Gospels. And it's a parable that's become known as the parable of the dishonest money manager. The parable of the dishonest money manager, I hope you're intrigued by that. What's that parable all about? Well, I want to try to take a look at it today in three parts. Today we're going to see first what Jesus is saying in the parable, 
Second, why he is saying it. And third, how Jesus can say what he says. What he's saying, why he's saying it, and how he can say anything at all about money in the first place. Well, let's see what he's saying here and begin at the beginning. It's Luke chapter 16. Verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So once upon a time, because this isn't a true story, once upon a time, because this is a parable Jesus is making up to make a point, once upon a time there was a rich man who owned it all and a manager who was, ta- who was accused of wasting the rich man's possessions. And there's something you should know right away about this, a couple of things. You should know Jesus is speaking, of course, to people uh, of little means. They were all oppressed by Rome. They didn't have a lot. So he's not just speaking to the rich. He's also speaking to the poor, to all of us. But really, you should know that there are three primary ingredients of almost every parable Jesus gives. And there's someone in the parable who represents God. There's someone in the parable who represents us, humans. And there, number three, there's a problem in that relationship between God and and humans, and right away we see all three elements at work. There's the wealthy person, the one who has everything, and he has a manager he's employed to manage his stuff, take care of his whole world, all his money. None of it belongs to the manager. It all belongs to the wealthy owner. But the manager, the one who owns nothing but has been given everything, he has been accused of wasting his master's possessions. So what will happen next? Verse 2. So we called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So the master calls the manager in and says, Your time is up. You can't be here any longer. I'm calling you to an account over what you have done with my money. Verse 3. The manager says to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. So the manager sees he only has a little bit of time left. The manager sees he only has a little bit of opportunity left. And he says this, he goes on, he says, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not strong enough to dig. You know, I'm sort of an inside kind of a guy. I'm ashamed to beg. I do have my pride after all. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And what you're about to hear, what I think would have blown the minds of Jesus' audience because they don't know what's coming next. So what does the manager do when he sees he only has a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity left? Verse 5, so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, because he doesn't know, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, basically, How does 450 sound? And I can imagine the other businessman in the story, when he sees what kind of a deal he's being offered here, he might have said back to the manager, hey, hey, thank you. Hey, if you ever need something in the future, just let me know. Just let me know. And the manager, I think, might have said back to him, that's very kind of you. Yes, I just may take you up on that one day. And the manager then went on to another person, another businessman, and he did the same thing again. Then he asked a second, and how much do you owe? Because he doesn't actually know. A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Well, he told him, in essence, how does 800 sound? Hey, that debtor might have replied, hey, if you ever need a favor in return, let me know. 
Let me know. I'll see what I can do. Well, the manager might have replied, it's funny you say that. I just may take you up on that one day. And we're supposed to to see and to realize this likely went on and on and on with each one of the master's debtors. And of course, at this point, the audience just knew what was going to happen next. They just knew the money manager was going to be caught. They just knew the manager would be exposed or punished or taken to court, maybe even jailed. Or at the very least, they knew in the story that manager would be condemned by Jesus. Oh, but Jesus, he knew how to confuse his audience just enough. To get him to lean into the parable in order to make his point. Because Jesus was the master teacher. Jesus was the master storyteller. And now, here comes the plot twist no one saw coming. Verse 8. The master, wait for it, commended the dishonest manager because, why? He had acted shrewdly. That means wisely, smartly, skillfully. What, what, what? The master, Jesus? You're saying the master, the God character, commended the dishonest manager. What are you saying, Jesus? Are you, dis- are you endorsing dishonesty? No, I'm not. Are you telling us to cheat our bosses, Jesus? No, I'm not. Are you telling us to cheat the government, Jesus? No, no. And no, then what are you saying, Jesus? And at this point, now, now, Jesus steps out of the story, out from behind the parable, the lens of the story, out behind the camera, and he leans back into his audience and he begins to make his point. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So he's saying that the people of this world, it means the people who believe that there is only life and only death. That there is only this life. There is no life to come. The people who believe in only a birth certificate on one end and a death certificate on the other, that sometimes the people of this world can sometimes see money for what it is more clearly than the people of the light. Now, that day, the people of the light were the Jewish people. They had the the light of the Torah, the light of the promises of God's covenant, the light of the prophets to guide them. And I think, I think, I think that you would be on safe ground if you extended that metaphor to you and to me, to the church today, because after all, isn't Jesus the light of the world? Yes, he said he was. But Jesus is saying sometimes, sometimes the business people of this world with no faith do better with money than the people of the church, so to speak, who have faith. Well, why, why, why is that Jesus there that would be asking? What, what do we need to see about our money? How should we use our money and our stuff and our resources in a wise way? Well, now that Jesus has given them the plot twist, now he concludes with a punchline. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's this? Is he just like telling us to party indefinitely like it was 1999? Some of you look at me like, what the heck is he talking about? That's a prince. Thank you, Gen X right there. This is a caution. He's telling us to throw caution to the wind to blow out your IRA, your 401k, like take your clients or hey, your boss to the Super Bowl. Is that what he's saying? No. Jesus is not advocating for irresponsible living. If you're a person with little to no means, he's not telling you not to care for your family. He's not advocating for a self-centered financial lifestyle. That's not what this is about. To say that would go against what he clearly says in just a few verses, which we'll see. But what is he after here? What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. One day, all you have in this world will be gone because you 
will be gone from this world. One day, I don't know if you caught that. It's just a, just the truest statement you're going to hear in this sermon. All you have in this world will be gone because you will be gone from this world. One day, there will be no more money. One day, there will be no more spending because there will be no more time. There will be no more opportunity. And so when the master, uh, the, the, excuse me, the manager saw he only had a little bit of time. When the manager saw he only had a little bit of opportunity left, he acted wisely. And when he saw the end was near, when he saw he was going to be called to a given account with the money of the master, he changed how he lived. He was commended because the money manager did what he could do to create a better life for others and better relationships for himself in light of the coming judgment. Therefore, he's telling us, he's just telling us, use what little bit of time you have little bit of opportunity you have because one day all of it will be gone. Use that time and that opportunity right now to do something meaningful for other people right now because one day, because you'll be gone, you'll be called to give an account for what you have done with your little bit of money and your little bit of time and your little bit of opportunity. Now, you should not listen to any of this unless... Unless Jesus Christ really is God. Unless he really came from heaven to our planet to show us what true spiritual reality is like. To show us what the future, what eternity holds for us because he has been there because he knows. And if, if, if he really did come back to life and if the resurrection of Jesus Christ was enough. It was sufficient. It was catalytic enough to begin the whole movement of Christianity overnight. In the place where it was, uh, people were preconditioned to ignore it and to end it with people who have been taught to disbelieve. If that happened, which it did, and if that happened, then he really is God. And I think that if someone is able, by the way, to predict their own death and resurrection, and then it happens, I think that person is worth listening to about the other side. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you a little bit of time, you a little bit of opportunity to create meaning in life for others and for yourself. Why is he saying this? Why is Jesus saying this at all? Number two, why is he saying this? Well, I think he's telling us this parable, giving us this teaching for two key reasons. And I'm going to go through both and I'll set the first reason up with this question. Do you know what uh, the, the moment is, the moment that our staff, our Mosaic staff, our church staff here at Mosaic, do you know what the moment that our staff lives for all year long is? Do you know what that moment is? You're saying, no, I have no idea, Morgan. This is the worst question ever. It's the moment. The moment we live for is the moment that we go to hand that check to the live big recipient like you saw on the screen right there. That is the moment our staff lives for uh, because everybody all year long wants to go to that. And Taz Kelly, who's our legendary videographer, he filmed it this year because everybody always wants to go. He had to cap the amount of people who could actually go because they don't all fit in the video. We can't fit them all in there. And this year, I didn't go because I got capped. I got cut from the list because everybody else wanted to go. But I have gone year after year after year. And, and I, when I go every time, I get choked up every time the emotion and the tears start to come from this place. I don't even know where it comes from. I can't get the words out. And we see the, the reaction on the people's face. And it's, you see when it's beginning to dawn on them that either their life is changing right then 
or the lives of the people that they serve are changing right then. That moment you can't buy. And I feel in that moment what I think heaven feels like. I think that's what the presence of God for eternity feels like. Matter of fact, I know, I believe that's what it's going to feel like because Jesus and Jesus say, he'll say in the next life, to those who have followed him in this life, when they enter heaven, he says this, what? Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into what? The joy, that's right, the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. He's saying, I came that you may experience joy. That's what Jesus Christ wants us to experience in this life. John 15, 11, this will blow your mind. Jesus says, John 15, he says, I have come that you might have the full measure of joy within you. Paul later on says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and what? Joy. That's right. This whole Christian life is about joy. Jesus wants us to experience joy. And Jesus knows this, and therefore you should know that joy does not come in a box on your porch from Amazon.com. You should know because Jesus knows every kiss does not begin with K. And Jesus knows and so should you that joy does not come in a car at Christmas with a big red bow tied around it with payments inside it. You can't even afford it anyway. So that stuff is, it's, it's, stuff's all got its place. Got its place. But those things, hear me, they can't bring you joy. Jesus came that we might have joy with everything, including our money. And here, 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 right here is where joy is found when it comes to our stuff and our money and our resources. Joy doesn't come from having more stuff. Joy comes from having more stories. Joy comes from having more stories. I'll say it again. That was better than the second service. They stared at me in stunned silence. I had to change my inflection there to give it more weight and heft. All right. Joy doesn't come from having more stuff. Joy comes from having more stories. The point is you don't get joy from stuff. You get joy from stories, stories of generosity. Listen, listen, Jesus knows this. He knows, and you should know. You can't get that feeling, the feeling on that screen, in that video, in that moment, in that place. You can't get that feeling from a 70-inch TV at Costco. I don't care how cheap they are because they're cheap. It's pretty amazing, actually. You can't get that feeling from a new pair of Jordans or sneakers. You can't get it from a designer purse. Those things are all fine, but those things will all fade. And so let me tell you this. When they stand around your graveside, when they come to your funeral and your wake and they talk about you because you're gone, I can tell you the one thing that they will not talk about because I've been to funerals and so have you. I've done funerals. You probably haven't. But at both, listen, I can tell you the one thing people do not talk about at funerals. No one ever talks about a person's shoes or purses or TVs or stuff. They only talk about stories. They only tell stories. Story of how that person, if they did, how that person blessed others, made friends for themselves, were generous with what they have to give. No one ever talks about how much the person in the casket kept. They only talk about how much they gave. I tell you, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, that means when you die, when your time and your money and your opportunity are gone, because it'll all go to someone else. He says, I tell you, use your stuff to create more stories. Why? So that you can enter in, enter in to the joy of your master. It's your choice. 
Oh, more stuff or more stories. But there's another second reason, second reason, maybe better than the first, why Jesus tells this parable. Because he doesn't just want us to experience something. I believe he wants to set us free from something. Here it is. When Jesus concluded this parable, do you know what he said at the end? You may know it's sort of famous, but let me try to help you feel this a little more deeply. He finishes the whole teaching and concludes it all like this. At the end of the parable, he says, no one can serve two masters. Now, I think if you'd have been in the crowd, you might have said, I know, I think I would have said, okay, okay, I got it, Jesus. You're saying there are two potential masters in my life. I can only serve one of them. Simple enough, I got it. He goes on, either, either, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Got it, Jesus. When I choose one, by default, it means I reject the other. I got it. I see where you're going. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and, oh, I know, I know, Jesus, pick me. Pick me. I know the answer to the fill in the blank. You're about to say, I cannot serve both God and the devil. Because like the devil is like your opposite. I know, God, you're more powerful, but like the devil's sort of powerful too. And if I don't serve God, yes, you're saying the main competitor for my heart is, Jesus said, you can't serve God and your money. Isn't it fascinating? He never says the chief competitor for our hearts is the devil or Satan. And especially as American people, we would do well to listen to this. He says it's money. Why does he say this? Well, I think there's a number of reasons he says this. But one reason I think he's saying this is because money lies like the devil lies. They're both master deceivers, master tricksters. Money lies. Let me give you a few lies. Money lies like this. You probably heard this. Maybe I'm the only one. Money says this. If you only had a little bit more of me, you'd be happy. If you just had another, uh, more money, more shoes, more stuff. But it's not true. Money lies like this. I am the meaning of life. Oh, but it's not true. Hear me. Something only has meaning when it's a means to an end. That's what makes something meaningful when it's full of meaning, when it goes towards something else. And so if money is the meaning of life, it's what it's all about. If to have it means you feel safe and secure at a fundamental and cosmic level, And to not have it means you feel unsafe or insecure at a fundamental cosmic level. That, my friends, that is the biblical definition of an idol. Money lies when it says, if you only had a little bit more, you'd be happy. Money lies when it says it's the meaning of life. And money lies most of all when it says this, that you can be devoted to God and keep all of it while giving none of it. It's a lie. To think you can be devoted to God and keep all of it while giving none of it. Now let's pause and slow this down because you're thinking, Morgan, I feel your grip tightening. Like the room's getting a little smaller, a little little hotter now. So let's just do this right now, right now. I just like for you to try to take your own internal temperature. Do you feel perhaps a kind of tug of war in your heart. The thought of like giving that thing away. The thought of giving that thing that you really love away to someone else in a way that doesn't benefit you. Maybe, maybe if you have a paycheck of giving away a significant, consistent percentage every single time, what would that feel like? Or just giving that thing you love away to someone else. Do you feel that? Now, do you know? There was another group right here overhearing Jesus teach this parable. And you know, they felt it too. Here's what they felt and here's what they did. Verse 14 says, the Pharisees who went to worship services, the Pharisees who read their Bibles, 
but who loved money, heard all of this, and were sneering at Jesus. There's a tug of war in our hearts. It's amazing. Listen, listen. It's easier, I think, many times. It's so much easier for us to trust Jesus with our sin than it is for us to trust him with our stuff. Oh, it's easier for us to trust, us, for trust Jesus with our sin than our stuff. It's easier for us to cry out for Jesus to rescue us from that addiction because we don't want it anyway, from that pain in our body because we don't want it anyway, from that thing that grips our child's heart because we don't want it in their life anyway. It's easier to, for us to cry out for Jesus to rescue from our sin than it is to ask him to rescue us from our stuff even though he said the chief competitor for our hearts is money. That's how deep the tension runs. That's how strong the tug of war is. What can help us? What can set us free? What can help us pray the prayer I think we should pray if we understand this rightly? The prayer, Jesus, save me from my stuff, my money. What can help us pray that? It's not just by seeing that Jesus says to give or even seeing why he says to give. It's number three. It's we can experience this freedom, go free by seeing how. He can say any of this at all. On the night that Jesus of Nazareth was arrested and betrayed, he, he took his friends, you may know the story, he took his friends uh, into a private space in, the, in a house, this place called the Upper Room in the city of Jerusalem to have one last meal, one last supper. And on the way there, on the way to the room, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus, even after three years of mentoring them, leading them, loving them, serving them, shepherding them, teaching them, Jesus on the way had heard them, it says, he had overheard them fighting over who would be the greatest in his kingdom. Because they knew, I mean, they knew if Jesus had a kingdom, yeah, he would be first. But surely there were spots open for numbers two and three because, you know, like Jesus was just special. No one could walk on water, raise a dead, multiply food. We got that. So to be, though, his number two meant you were really the number one of everyone else. And Jesus had heard them fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. He had heard them arguing over perhaps, perhaps a lack, it seems, a lack of clarity, of organizational structure, a lack of hierarchy. I mean, Jesus, how this whole operation is going to run? How's your business going to run? Who's really in charge after you, Jesus, since you haven't told us, Jesus, it might as well be me. I'll throw my name in the hat. But hadn't he already told them who the one to take first place would be? Hadn't he already told them who the greatest in the kingdom would be? He had already told them it's the one who serves. It's the servant of all, the one who gives to all. He's saying the spot is open. The application's out there. It's waiting to be filled. And as they all filed into dinner that night in the upper room, after three years, it seemed that nothing has changed because they all came in, they all sat down to eat, and they all ignored the towel the water, the basin, the bowl that was there for the servant in the room to take up and to wash the feet of everyone else in the place. And when it says that Jesus had had that room prepared, I wonder. I wonder if he didn't have the towel and the water and the bowl and the basin put in a prominent place so that every person would be forced to see. I wonder if this wasn't one last test. And one by one, they eyed the bowl and the water and the towel and the basin. And one by one, they sat down because the greatest in the kingdom, the greatest in the kingdom don't wash feet. The greatest in the kingdom have their feet washed. The greatest in the kingdom certainly don't give. The greatest person is given 
too, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we read that Jesus Christ in that moment realized two things. First, he realized that everything in the universe belonged to him. He became aware, maybe even at a greater level, that all belonged to him. All the stuff, all the glory, all the power, all the riches in the world were rightfully his. Let me ask you, what would you do if you realized it all belonged to you? And rightfully so. What if you saw not only that it was yours, but that you deserved to have it? But it also realized, second, not only that it belonged to him rightfully, but he realized that he was returning to God. He realized he only had a little bit of time left, a little bit of opportunity left to do something with what he had. So what would he do with all of his power, authority, riches? John 13, 4 says, so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. Oh, could you imagine being there? As the greatest one, not just in the room, the greatest one, not just in the nation, but the greatest human and being who's ever lived, took off his sign of power. That's his rabbinic robe. That's his symbol of status. Could you imagine being there, seeing him strip to the waist, bend over, and pour water in that basin? Could you imagine the horror you might feel as you realized what was taking place? It says, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel, that was wrapped around him. Could you imagine what you would feel as you realized that not only had you chosen not to do this for him or for anyone else, but that you knew that he knew that you had chosen not to do this for him or anyone else. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked him. We don't know, Jesus. We're not sure. You're always telling, doing crazy stuff. We don't get it. We think so. What's, what's the lesson? You call me teacher and Lord, and look at this, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. How can Jesus tell us that joy doesn't come from more stuff, but from more stories? How can he tell us it's more blessed, there's more happiness, there's more joy in giving than receiving? Verse 15, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Can you see Jesus? He took all in a way, all his stuff, all his power, all his authority, all his right to hang on to his heavenly bank account, his divine paycheck, and he turned it all into a story. He can tell us this because he has done this. Let me tell you, Jesus never asked you to go anywhere. He hasn't gone first. He never asked you to do anything. He hasn't already done first. He turned everything he had into a story of giving. For God so loved the world and you and you and you and you and you that he gave. Very truly, he concludes, I tell you, Truly, truly, the essence of truth is this. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be what? Blessed, happy, joyful, if you do them. 
And he walked out of that room and he went to the cross. And for our sakes, he became bankrupt. For our sakes, he became poor. He emptied himself so that we might become, Paul writes later, rich, rich with joy, rich with purpose, rich with redemption, rich with generosity. Now, now that he has done this for us, he has set us an example that we should do for others as he's done for us. Jesus used his little bit of time, his little bit of opportunity, and he turned his stuff into the greatest story ever told. So what does it look like when his grace meets our riches, our things? I think it looks like that, like turning what we have, our stuff, into stories. So this week, this week, here's what I want you to do. Would you, would you think about two things, two things. Number one, think about the kinds of stories that we tell about Jesus. Think about that. What kind of stories do we tell about Jesus? And second, think about this. Think about the kind of stories you might want others to tell about you. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.